Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The sound of endurance racing around the world. RadioLeMans.com. Hello there, this is John Heindorf and another one of our Tyler's Long Ones, named after Graham Tyler, whose idea this was in the first place to sit down with various members of the motorsport community on a little bit more of a relaxed situation and uh, go back through their early career. We're in the Espresso Lounge in the High Street at Tring and... Our subject for today's long one is Mitch Evans. Uh, Mitch, first of all, great choice of venue, and one of my favourite places to come. Very good cup of coffee as well. Tell me about your early years then in New Zealand. Your, your dad was a racer. Did that influence your early career? It did, yeah. His, his father also raced, so more of a rallying background, but um, you know, the, you know the, the fuel and oil's always been in our veins from that, and <laughs> You know, my dad gave me a go, you know, I was always driving when I was three, four, you know, sitting on his lap in the car or whatever. Had my first kind of go-kart when I was when I was four, um, which, looking back now, just seems absolutely mad. But knowing my dad, that just seems normal. Um, and then, you know, legally, <clears throat> when I was able to race at six, I got my car on my birthday and yeah. that sort of stuff. So, so that was what, a cadet cart or something like that? Cadet cart, yeah, a little yeah. racket, 85cc. Um, you know, it was probably one of the best days of my life you know when you get your car your helmet all the kit it's just incredible but I guess in a way you know I've got an older brother as well who, who races but we weren't really pushing until we, we we got the opportunity you know dad dad knows the expense of it um and it wasn't saying that we could just do it as a hobby so you know he he sat down with Simon my brother and I and said um you know, if you guys want to do the seriously, you you know, I'm more than happy to, to 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 do it. But you have to be fully committed to it. And you know, and what age were you at that then when he when he said that? Because doing a bit of carting, you know, dad and son, doing a bit of spannering yourself, learn a little bit. But even in carting, particularly here in Europe, and I, I doubt it's any different down in New Zealand, it, that gets serious and gets expensive very quickly. Yeah, exactly. So you know, he wanted to know that we were fully committed to it, which is. <clears throat> you know, looking back was 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 good of him because um, he gave us the opportunity. He didn't force us into it, and um, that was around when I was six or seven. <clears throat> and um, when I started winning a couple of things quite early on, I, I realised that I really got a, a bug for it, and, and, and you know, I wanted wanted more of it. So um, I was I was playing rugby league as well a lot when I was younger, and and I represented a lot of rep teams and. Um, my second cousin's was quite a big league player back in New Zealand, so he gave me the opportunity to choose between the two sports. And then um, that's a pretty heavy conversation to have at such a young age, and and put the responsibility on your shoulders to make that decision. I mean, looking back now, 
First of all, do you think you made the right decision? You could have been a pro rugby league player. And secondly, were you ready to make that decision there? I mean, it's kind of worked out for you, let's be honest, but that, as I say, very early. Very early, yeah. And then obviously massively naive to the big wild world. Um, probably my dad financially probably would have preferred me to do rugby league. <laughs> you know, a pair of boots are pretty cheap these days. and um, So that from that side, he probably would have preferred that. But his heart's always been with motorsport, to be honest. And, um, you, know, for, you know, 14 years later, I'm still doing it. So, um, so what were those early years like then, karting? And then what? When, do you, when did you make the transition into cars and what did you go and race? We're fairly ignorant in Europe of the um, New Zealand and Australia and the whole Antipodean racing series uh, and scene, but we see TRS and things like that nowadays. What, what were you doing? Was it Formula Ford and then into something slicks and wicks? So I, ne- I never actually got to the senior, um, the senior categories in karts. I, I got out of karts when I was 13, um, uh, I did compete at the Worlds at, you know, the Rotex Max Challenge, so competed at that, um, and then got straight out of go, go-karts and got into a category called Former V, Former First, which is obviously, you know, a step below Former Ford and, you know, really, really good training ground to learn all the basics and, you know, gear change, because it was an H-pattern gearbox. You know, so you can heal, you're one of the young drivers who can still heal and tour then, yeah. it's a dying art I'm afraid. Yeah, I was, yeah just, just just the other day we were thinking about it because um, there's not going to be many drivers that I race against that have actually driven you know, H-pad and gearbox that have had to right foot brake and heal and tow, so to have experienced that and that you know, in Formula V and then Formula Ford was incredible, so I did, I did a couple of races in Formula V just to get used to it, I was obviously very young and then went straight into Formula Ford in New Zealand and um, yeah had, had great success in that got second to Richie Sanaway um, and then we both went to Australia actually um, to compete in the Australian Formula Ford National Championship which is massively competitive so um, that's when I was how old, was, how old will you be then then? I was 14 then wow Australia and New Zealand are not that far apart it's not like coming back to Europe but still that's a big commitment a lot of time away from home, a very packed championship that is massively competitive. That was actually quite a big step. Yeah, looking back, I didn't actually realise how big it was. You know, it was just felt normal for me. You know, I took the, you know, we ticked a lot of boxes in New Zealand, and it was just ready to make that transition over. And from that, I actually that's when I met Mark Weber um, at the Aussie Grand Prix. We were support category to to the F1, and obviously being very young, I got on the podium, which. You know, raise a lot of interest and all that sort of stuff. So, and then I had a really good, really good, you know, um, season. Um, my teammate won the championship, and I got second. He was 21. I was, you know, I turned 15 by the end of the championship. But, um, you know, for me, that was one of the biggest years of, of, of my career in terms of the interest and and that sort of got Mark um, on board with me. So, you know, it was looking back, it was a huge year. Was that? The year that it really started to dawn on you that there was more than a small opportunity for you to actually make make your living out of this and be a proper professional driver. Yeah, but I've, you know I've always been really realistic in terms of you know how difficult it was to to break into F1 and because my my goal since I was four was always F1. So so I, I just sort of t- took each step at a time and tried to make the next transition. You know I knew I deserved it. You know in terms of I had to tick that box win a few races either win or get second in the championship so then and deep down inside me I knew I was ready to move on to the next step so after doing that in New Zealand and Oz I, then I went back and did the Toyota Racing Series 
which was my first championship in the wings and slicks categories, and uh, managed to win that my first year, which was which was great. And then did a bit of Aussie for Formula Three that year. Mm-hmm. Older chassis to what they have in Europe, but still very good learning for me. And then the following year, that's when I signed with Mark and came over to Europe. So I, I did one more season of. Um, the Toyota Racing Series managed to do back-to-back championships, which was great, and then came to Europe with a very healthy CV up until that point. And with Mark Webber backing you, in all honesty, that must have been an advantage because there's a lot of good drivers out there. Mark Webber is in your corner, and you must have realised that that was going to give you some advantage. Absolutely, and you know that's what got me over to Europe because I raced for his <coughs> raced for his GP3 team. Um, you know, signed with them a long-term contract for him to manage me which which is great and then and I had a pretty decent year won my second race in GP3 against some you know I was very naive in terms of who I was actually up against because I never really knew the European drivers you know there's Bottas Sims Calado a number of really good drivers and I'm you know winning my second race in Barcelona so you must have thought oh this is a piece of cake this is just like racing back at home again well it was for me, it took a while to kick in because I realised the depth when I did my first race. I was like, okay, this is going to be really difficult. And then, yeah, that weekend was just was a turning point in my career. And then, um, and then yeah, had a, had a bit of an up and down season, but always had really good pace, which, which for me, kept my head high. And, mm. and then re-signed the next year. I finished ninth in championship, which was really disappointing, but... Then the next year we re-signed with, with MW Arden and then you know took the championship on and, and managed to win. So that that set me up well for making that next transition to GP2 um, with Arden again. And since then, it does feel like my career has not plateaued a little bit, but um, you know 2013 was has definitely been the hardest year of, of, of my career for sure. Um, Going into those, the GP2 and GP, the GP3 and GP2 categories, clearly that's a that's a large financial investment for somebody. I've got really really low responses um, from New Zealand, from you know um, the Gilchraps. You know the Gilchrap family has been a huge supporter of New Zealanders. Um, you know trying to break through to either the states or you know they've, they've been supporters of my sisters and carts, but you know into Europe or whatever. So. I've had great support from them and a number of other ca- companies um, from New Zealand that got me the opportunity to race in GP3 and also my first year in GP2 with Arden. So um, obviously it helped, really helped being with Mark. Um, it always adds a lot of a lot of horsepower to, mm. to any deal. Having that, that loyal support financially, does that slightly take a weight off your mind the last thing you need to be worrying about is whether you can afford to fix a front ring, wing if you break it or where the next tranche of money's coming for the next race. No, exactly. And, you know, my family's not, not, not well off. I've always been well aware, you know, the expense, you know, to damage the car or anything like that. And the first time I drove a former Toyota car, my dad said, whatever you do, do not, <laughs> do not ding this car. And then he, you know, then he told me how much the front wings were and I was just like... And then that sort of, you know, brings you right back down on your feet because you know that, you know, I can't just 
do this for fun, you know, absolutely not. And then when they got to GP2, and, and everyone knows how much those budgets are, lucky I got a pretty good deal and, and got prize money from winning GP3 to go, take on to GP2. But, you know, the expense of, of the front wings or any sort of damage, and for me that was, was difficult to embrace because I've, I've never really been that, you know, I've, I've realised, you know, how much a dollar is worth and, and you know, when you're talking millions in, in euros for us it's just unreal so it did I did feel the pressure but because I never wanted to you know obviously have an accident and then I felt like I had to perform mm-hmm. even more so you know that that was tough and, and we didn't have a great year you know um, they had a great year the year before with Arden but the tyres changed and we just could not get on top of the car the whole year I'd have you know a number of podiums to suffer that but could never have a consistent feeling then the next year moved to um, Russian time and for me financially that was a I didn't have to bring pretty much any budget um, which was huge because I wouldn't have been able to afford another year of GB2 You were that close to not being able to continue your, your single seater career you would have had to look for something else because GP2 wasn't financially viable for you Yeah exactly so you know there was it was a from my management point of view, that was that was great. They could get that deal with Russian Time. Um, obviously, the team changed a lot from motor po- motor park running with Sam Bird and Tom Dillman from 2013 to 14, and then iSport started running it. So um, it was a new new thing for me. You know, I was team leader and trying to, you know, they'd been out of the championship championship for a year, so there was a bit of housekeeping to get under, you know, to to do. And and, and for me, also for my own confidence, to try and get back from from having a pretty tough year in 13 so um, you know fortunately I had some great success in 2014 with, with Russian time um, you know getting my first feature race win then, my, then the next week and getting my, my next feature race win which you know is, you know it's on, definitely on par with my, my championship winning year in GB3 so and then finishing fourth in championship you know that's something that I was massively proud of um, and then you look back from where you've come from, it's like, you know, getting fourth in, in a category like GB2 with some of the names I, I was up against, you know, it was, it was really incredible, to be honest. So it was, you know, then we were trying to push again to F1, but, you know, there's just so many hurdles to get over to get into F1 at the moment, most of them financial, um, which is a bit of a joke, to be honest. Um, I've been quite, you know, verbal with how I feel about it because... For someone like myself and, 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 you know, Richie would back me up with that and, you know, a number of Kiwis, or, you know, Hartley. When you realise how far we've come from in terms of, you know, from where we are in the world, making the sacrifice to come over here, I never really saw it as a sacrifice. I saw it as an opportunity, obviously, which it is, but there's a lot of sacrifices that come with that. And then ticking all the boxes and then you get to, it gets to that last door, that last step on the ladder, and it's just like there's no way of getting up, you know. For me, that was that's been really hard to take in. So, uh, you're listening to uh, Long One on RadioLamont.com with Mitch Evans. We're at the very lovely Espresso Lounge in Tring High Street. I'd like to explore that a little bit before we go very much further. That that final jump to Formula One. You've proved quite clearly that you have the ability in the junior formula. The issue is that you're getting further and further up the pyramid. And the top of the pyramid is is very narrow. There are fewer seats. They command a premium. What do you do as a young driver, and how does that affect your mindset to say, 
well I have to do another year on GP2 I've got to keep my name in there yeah it's been it's been very very testing to be honest mentally um, you know to have come quite far and then for it just to literally there's a roadblock roadblock right in front of you just that you cannot climb up you can't you can't go across um, it's just it's hard to keep your head up high to be honest but you know, I've come. You know, as I said, you know, I've, I've come a long way, and, and I realise that. So I don't want to stop now. How long can you keep going back and doing GP two? Though it's a young man's sport, particularly in Formula One now, and getting younger. No, exactly, and, and, and obviously financially, it's you just can't keep on going. Fortunately, you know, <clears throat> this year and, and last year, I've I've got a really really good deal that requires me not to bring pretty much any budget. So, well, you're not getting paid either. This is this is you know you're not earning money to, to pay your bills yeah exactly and okay I'm 20 years old I'm young but I've been doing it since I was 13 so <laughs> it's, it feels like a long time um, so yeah that, that is very frustrating and that's one of the biggest reasons or the only reason why I've, I've decided to do the LMP2 thing um, not as a backup just as a realistic goal because you know LMP1 and, and sports cars is, such a, is, is in such a positive Situation at the moment compared to Formula One. And, I mean, if you look at Le Mans this year, there will be 33 works drivers all getting paid by manufacturers. All right, not to the level of Formula One, but they're expected to perform, to behave, and to prepare at the same level as Formula One. I'm sure Mark's told you that. Yeah, absolutely, and, and the teams that are on par with Formula One teams, you know, in terms of the size of them and, and the budgets and all that. So. It's hard. It's a very awkward position that, you know, the timing for a lot of junior junior drivers like myself, the timing to get to try and get into Form One is couldn't be any worse, to be honest. Um, Did you look at maybe going to the states and doing IndyCar or something like that? Yeah, it's definitely in the back of my mind, um, especially the success that Dixon has had over there. You know, Scott Scott has done so well for himself, um, and he's still going. You know, he stayed he stayed with the exact same team since he was since he's you know first been. in... IndyCar, which is great, so that's definitely um, definitely on my radar. Again, whether it's realistic is another thing, but um, you know, I, I really want to give the LMP2, you know, my 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 best shot, and then, you know, ideally, you want to be in a works, you know, LMP1 drive for the following year. There's a family connection with sports car racing and endurance racing because your dad qualified to race at Le Mans in '96 with a Kiwi effort, and then couldn't do it because of a very very nasty accident he had breaking the uh, New Zealand land speed record so has Le Mans been a part of your life since you were younger you've been aware of sports car racing at least yeah I've always been aware of it and obviously with that history of dad um, from 96 has has been you know a little bit different um, for me I've never really I never thought when I came over to Europe that I would you know I thought I would actually be racing there um Mm because it was never on my radar to be doing sports cars, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest. Um, but now that I've got the opportunity to and realise, you know, I, I, went, I, went, I went as a spectator last year and, and I was blown away by how massive the event is. It is just enormous. So to now be part of that and obviously with it, you know, with my dad's, you know, um, history with it, with qualifying but not actually being able to race, um, he's coming over for it, which is going to be really special and, to be able to complete the race, or hopefully complete the race for him, um, will be, you know, for me, you know, be really, it'll be, it'll be a nice touch. How influential then has Mark Webber's experience with Porsche been 
I think I think Mark getting out of Formula One and at the end of 2013, you know, it raised a lot of eyebrows um, to the state of of the sport, um, well Formula One, and um, he realised where it was sort of heading and wasn't overly enthusiastic about the new regulations of of Formula One and for timing, you know, with with, with Porsche coming into LMP1 and and his love for the Porsche Porsche brand, um, it couldn't have been any better, the timing. And looking back, he absolutely nailed it, I think. And he knows that, but um, yeah, that that was an interesting, really interesting move, but, you know, one that he's going to look back on and probably say it was probably one of his greatest moves. Um, And did that, and the fact that it paid off so well for Mark... Was he pushing you, or was that something you were asking him about? No, he definitely wasn't pushing me, but it was always on the radar when he, when he, you know, after the first few races, realised how great it was, um, <laughs> and the slick operation with Porsche, and, and just how impressive they have been in the first sort of, you know, eighteen months of their comeback. Um, yeah, from then on, it, we sort of definitely got a lot more interested in it for, for, for my career. So. Yeah, he's a, he definitely hasn't pushed me into it. You know, I've I've, I've wanted to, wanted to do it myself because I'm I'm a very realistic person and, and I know the state of everyone is, is mad and you know the what's going to happen in terms of my goals of trying to get into for one a very very or well, my chances of almost you know nil. So, but you haven't given that up because you're still doing GP two yeah. this year as well. You're keeping your head above the parapet in terms of single-seater racing? Honestly, I don't think anyone has got a clue where F1's going to be in the next few years, you know, in the next five or ten years. No one has got any idea where it's going to be, whether it's still going to be around or whether it's going to be in a healthy position or whether other manufacturers start to go into Formula 1 for whatever reason. No one knows, so... um, so I would say yes, there probably still is an opportunity. Um, say if you went for it with a manufacturer that once again is a from one for whatever reason, or I look at it in terms of you know I'll, you you can only look a couple of years ahead of you know to, you can only plan a couple of years ahead in terms of racing in terms of you know for me LMP one seems safe for the next few years and. A lot of drivers are turning their interest into that where one's a bit on the on the ropes. And and like being out in a race, you can only react to what's around you. Yeah. You can plan a little bit ahead, but anything else you're starting to take risks. And taking risks with your career at your stage is something you don't want to do. So Jota and P two then is much more than a, a toy in the water here. This is something that you are putting in place to gain experience. It's not unlike you racing your Formula Ford at the Aussie Grand Prix, is it? You, you're out there. You're in front of the in front of the people who are making decisions. Absolutely, you know. And I think they do look down at the P2 categories, um, you know, for the, for their own you know future because they see the benefit of you know the experience of doing Le Mans, doing the work races and all that sort of stuff. And the cars are very similar in terms of the way that they're made okay the engine and, and, and the hybrid systems are very different but um, they see the value in that and yeah I think you know doing a year with, with doing the, doing this year with Jota whatever happens in terms of me getting a factory test or drive I've got no idea about but all I can do is give my best shot and, and try and make an opportunity come about and um, for me that's not going to happen from doing a really good job with, with Jota and, and 
you look at Harry last year, you know, he did a fantastic job and you know, deserve it's Harry Tinkler, of course, who's been picked up by uh, by Nissan as a works driver. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's full credit to him, and he's done that from his from merit. So, I want to you know go down the same track with, with in terms of you know trying to shine above the rest and and show that you know show the you know manufacturers and and, and LMP1 that you know there's there are drivers out there that are really hungry to to work with them and 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 be part of their journey in, in Le Mans and. And um, yeah, and hopefully add a lot of credit to their program. So we'll see what happens. But for me, I've just got to focus on um, doing a, doing a good job and solid job with Jota. And, and fortunately, that started off really well. Mm. And we, we can keep that up. You know, you just never know what will happen in the future. There's a solid little coterie now of, of Kiwi drivers in the WEC and in sports car racing. With Brendan, obviously most uh, prominent, Richie Stanaway doing a cracking job as well. You add to that. You have to have a very long memory to remember New Zealand drivers competing at the highest level and, and winning world championships. But there's a real there's a real buzz about New Zealand motorsport uh, at the moment. You're a proud Kiwi. You must be really pleased to be part of that. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's been a massive drought since the Amon McLaren and home days. Um, you know, obviously Denny Denny winning the world championship in in um, 67 which was incredible for for New Zealand but since then there has been a massive drought as you said I am I'm proud of where I'm come from and, and, and our heritage and and what what Kiwi drivers in the past have done for Formula 1 right now look at McLaren Formula 1 team um, that started from a little shed from not not far from where I live in New Zealand so um, that's you know quite incredible so um, you know we all appreciate the opportunities we get. You know, Brendan, now Earl with with, with oh, Porsche yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to see those those two drivers deservingly get those drives, and obviously Richie with the GT stuff doing really well with Aston. You know, New Zealand and it couldn't be in a better place with with drivers mm-hmm. at the highest level. Obviously, we don't we all you know strive to be in Formula One, but for pretty much the same circumstances, it's not happened for us. So mm-hmm. um, for us to take a little bit of a, a side step and you know, change of direction with our with our career is um is great to see them at the pinnacle of you know of sports car racing and um you know doing the country proud of that. Final question, tough one. Where are you in two years, in five years, in ten years time? You still clearly hold the dream of Formula One, but now you've tasted a little bit of of sports car and endurance racing. I get the feeling that it's opened your eyes a little bit. Absolutely. I think last year really opened my eyes, but now competing at a weekend has, has opened my eyes even more. But if I could predict, well, where I'd like to be in a couple of years would be obviously Formula One. Um, it's just just my heart's been there the whole the whole you know my whole life. But the way it is at the moment is is a, is a worry. Um, but realistically, in the next two years or in the next year or two, I want to be. I want to become a professional and start getting paid for for driving, so which I've never had before. So for me, that's my biggest goal: is, is to become a, a professional, whether that's an F1, LMP1, IndyCar, whatever, um, some some way, shape, or form. I want to want to be getting and earning a living from it and um, enjoying enjoying it at the same time. Mitch Evans, thank you very much for joining us on the long one here on RadioLamont.com. Thanks a lot. Cheers.
This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.